0: Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who destroyed the palace of Nebuchadnezzar the wicked. Here before me in Berlin were the remains of Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Should I say the blessing? Did this blessing apply only in what is now Iraq? Or did it also apply in Berlin? Welcome to Bible 365, episode 119. Tisha B'Av in Berlin, Hanukkah in Baghdad. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. To step into the Pergamon Museum in Berlin is to be transported back in time. There are today antiquities from the Middle East in museums all over the world, but these are objects, remnants, small reminders of what once was. But in Berlin, they have resurrected ancient Babylon itself, bringing its gates and palaces to Europe brick by brick so that we can stand before them, experience them, as its inhabitants did thousands of years ago. Even to a tourist with little knowledge of history and the Bible, it is still extraordinary. But for the religious Jew who is aware of the monarch, who oversaw the elevation of these edifices as a manifestation of his might, it is an incredible experience. For in Berlin, one can see remnants of the city and palace built by King Nebuchadnezzar, the first ruler to conquer Jerusalem and to destroy the temple. To see the remnants of Babylon is to relive the destruction of Jerusalem thousands of years ago. But to stand there is also to marvel how the light of Judaism still miraculously shines today. We last left off with King Josiah of Judah, who dies tragically young, and whose religious renaissance did not stave off God's decree of Babylonian conquest. Josiah is ultimately succeeded by his son, Jehoiakim, who resists Babylonia's insistence that his country fall under its sway. The emperor Nebuchadnezzar, however, will not take no for an answer. And when Jehoiakim dies... Babylonian forces descend on Jerusalem and on the new young king of Judea, Yehonia, or Yehoyachin. Nebuchadnezzar takes Yehonya prisoner and installs Yehonia's uncle, Sidkiyahu, as puppet ruler. Yehonia is taken into exile to Babylonia, along with the elite of his kingdom: ministers, scholars, artisans and prophets. Thus chapter 24, verse 8. Yehoyachin was 18 years old when he began to reign and he reigned in Jerusalem three months, and his mother's name was Nehushta the daughter of El-Natan of Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, and his servants did besiege it. And Yehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his princes and his officers. And the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign. Thus the elite of Jerusalem were taken, including the prophet Ezekiel who in Babylonia warns his brethren that the worst is yet to come. He is, of course, correct. Tzitkiyahu, the last king of Judah, in a Jerusalem now empty of its elite, rebels against Nebuchadnezzar's iron rule, heedlessly ignoring the warnings of the prophet who remains in Jerusalem, Jeremiah. Nebuchadnezzar's general, Nebuchadnezzar besieges, breaches, and burns Jerusalem to the ground. And on the 9th of Av, known as Tisha B'Av, The temple of David and Solomon is lost. Tzidkiah, Zedekiah himself, meets a brutal end. Chapter 24, verse 6. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon to Rivla, and they gave judgment upon him, and they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him with fetters of brass, and carried him to Babylon. Many of Zedekiah's subjects are taken to join their brethren in exile in Babylon, and this was the last time in Jewish history that a descendant of David would sit upon the throne of Israel in Jerusalem. The Pergamon Museum allows us to experience Nebuchadnezzar's might. Upon entering, one encounters an enormous gate that the king of Babel constructed in order to celebrate what was then the most famous city on earth, Babel, naming the gate after the Mesopotamian goddess Ishtar. The edifice is, then as now, a testament to the wonders of Babel, a city in what is now Iraq, from where its kings ruled over an empire for generations. Thousands of years later, the gate of Ishtar was discovered in the middle of the Iraqi desert. The bricks were painted and restored, and the gate itself was reassembled so that we can actually see what it looked like when Babylon bestrode the earth like a colossus. And as always, I'm grateful to Professors, Fans, and Reddish and their book, The Lost Treasures of the Bible, for teaching me about this edifice. The gate tells of an age in which Babel conquered Israel's enemies that had come before marking the end of Assyrian dominance. But Judea, as well, falls to Babylon. All those who entered Babel through this gate would then walk along an extraordinary road also arrayed with the very same bricks known as the processional way, linking the gate with the temple dedicated to the Mesopotamian god Marduk. This path known as the processional way has also been reconstructed in Berlin, with bricks aligning a hall on both sides. To visit the museum, to walk through the gate, to re-experience the processional way, is to see what the exiles of Babylon might have seen, to touch what they might have touched. And Professors Fant and Reddish not only note the importance of Nebuchadnezzar's gate for those that study the Bible, but also that of another object in the museum's collection, what is basically a budgetary record from the Babylonian court, which, among mentionings of various nationalities, there is a reference to the surviving king of Judah that had been taken into exile. It reads, quote, 32 pints of sesame oil for Hohyachin king of Judah; five pints of sesame oil for the five sons of the king of Judah, eight pints for eight men of Judah, one pint each. Strikingly, the last verses of the book of Kings describe a similar sort of support in the days of Nebuchadnezzar's heir. Verse 27. And it came to pass in the 7th and 30th year, of the captivity of Yehoiachin, king of Yehudah, in the twelfth month, on the seven and twentieth day of the month, that Evel-Morodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, did lift up the head of Yehoiachin, king of Judah, out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon, and changed his prison garments. And he did eat bread continually before him all the days of his life. And his allowance was a continual allowance given him of the king, a daily rate for every day, all the days of his life. Thus, to visit Berlin to see what was created by Nebuchadnezzar is to think of the ninth of Av, to think of Babylonia's destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. I have been to Berlin and to this museum, and I saw there not only the gate of Ishtar and the processional way, but also a reconstructed wall of the throne room of Nebuchadnezzar. Looking at it, I remembered that the Babylonian Talmud, which came from the community that was located in the site of ancient Babylonia, instructs us that anyone who comes upon the ruins and remains of Nebuchadnezzar's palace should say a blessing. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who destroyed the palace of Nebuchadnezzar the wicked. Here before me in Berlin were the remains of Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Should I say the blessing? Did this blessing apply only in what is now Iraq, or did it also apply in Berlin? I was unsure, but I could not resist saying the required words, though just to be safe. I did not say the full blessing with God's name. The rabbis are asking us, I think, in this blessing to ponder the twists and turns of history, to think about the ironic undoings of tyrants, and thereby to feel gratitude for the eternity of our people. Thus to say the blessing in Berlin was to remember not only Nebuchadnezzar, but also other tyrants that our people has outlasted. And it is in other cities on earth where one can also be inspired in this way. During the 1980s, Saddam Hussein became obsessed with Nebuchadnezzar. His subjects' villages were cruelly razed, destroyed, so that the Iraqi tyrant could build a theme park version of the city of Babel. And he joined on the buildings images of his own face with Babylonian architecture, linking an ancient enemy of Israel and a modern enemy of Israel. And perhaps one of the greatest symbols of Saddam's defeat can be found in a story recounted by Ilan Kar, who served in Iraq, and then later as the U.S. Special Envoy for Combating Anti-Semitism. Ilan Kar was a lieutenant during the Iraq War, and this marked for him a return to the land of his ancestors, for his own lineage bespeaks the glorious history of the Jews and the rabbis of Babylonia. It was only after his grandfather was persecuted and tortured that Ilan's family left Iraq for America. Now, he had returned, and following the conquest of Baghdad, he had the opportunity to light Hanukkah candles in one of the abandoned palaces of Saddam Hussein. Reflecting on the experience, Ilan Karr wrote as follows, quote, Banu choshech ligaresh, We have come to banish darkness. Thus begins a famous Hanukkah song, and no phrase better encapsulates the holiday's deeper meanings. This year, as a United States soldier serving in Iraq, I and several of my colleagues lit a Hanukkah lamp and uttered those words in a place that had never before heard them, the former presidential palace of Saddam Hussein, in the capital city of a new and free Iraq. Saddam thought himself to be like a god, or at least like those demigods of Mesopotamian history, Nebuchadnezzar and Hammurabi, with whom his boundless vanity inclined him regularly to equate himself. And Carr adds, This Hanukkah in Baghdad, in a large and lavish building, the gentle glow of a Hanukkah lamp shimmered throughout a cavernous room. One of the objects caught in its radiance is a gilded chair that used to serve as the tyrant's throne and the palace in which it sits used to be the capital building of his reign of terror. Today, the chair is empty, End quote. Ilan Kar's article about celebrating Judaism in the captured home of Saddam Hussein allows us to understand why the rabbis would compose a blessing on the destroyed home of Nebuchadnezzar. Not merely because they wished to revel in the defeat of a tyrant, but also, and more importantly, because to pronounce a blessing in such a place, to engage in Jewish prayer where once a cruel tyrant had lived, to link oneself to the liturgy of Jewish generations at the locus of what is now a destroyed dynasty is to be exquisitely aware of the endurance of the Jewish people and thereby of the existence of the God in whose name that blessing is pronounced. Banu Choshech Ligaresh Ilan Kar sang. We have come to chase away darkness. Thinking not only of Saddam Hussein, but also of his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar, we understand how appropriate that song is. Jewish tradition links the story of the house of David to the cycle of the moon, which is around 30 days. There were, the rabbis say, 15 generations from Abraham to Solomon, Solomon who built the temple from where the light of the divine radiated to the world. And we are, they added, eternally reminded of this fact through the moon reaching its brightest and fullest form on its 15th day. But from there, it was downhill. The 15th generation from Solomon was that of Zedekiah Tzidkiah, Zedekiah whose eyes were put out by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah, in whose age the temple, the light of the world, was destroyed. Zedekiah, the last king of David to rule until the emperor of Babylon plunged the world into spiritual darkness. This parallels the moon. For 15 days after it is full, the light of the moon is snuffed out. And yet, if, for Jewish tradition, the appearance of the new moon is a source of inspiration and joy, it is at least in part because we see in it a sign of Jewish renewal, a guarantee of our endurance, and a hint to the Davidic dynasty's messianic return. That is why Jews traditionally celebrate the new moon with the mantra, David, Melech, Yisrael, Chai King David lives eternally. His light will yet shine. We will discuss Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of the Temple and conclude the Book of Kings tomorrow. But this lecture, this episode of Bible 365, is being released on the day before Hanukkah begins. And so, we take note that as we learn of the luminance of the Davidic dynasty being snuffed out by Nebuchadnezzar, we ought to be, at the same time, inspired by Ilan Kar's description of how thousands of years later, the light of Judaism was aglow in the land of Nebuchadnezzar, and how someone whose family was a member of the community that first began when Jews were brought to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, kindled candles in the palace of a tyrant who had proclaimed himself the next Nebuchadnezzar. It is a sublime embodiment of the mysterious, miraculous nature of Jewish eternity, a miracle which the light of the menorah is intended to reflect. I therefore wish my listeners a luminous Hanukkah, and, remembering not only Jewish history's tragedies, but also its triumphs, I echo one of the earliest phrases of the biblical text that we have been studying together, Let There Be Light. This is Meir Soloveitchik looking forward to learning together with you on Hanukkah tomorrow. Signing off.